UX Podcast Episode 129. Hi, and welcome to UX Podcast. Balancing business, technology, and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Pad Axpo. And today we're going to be having a chat to Lou Rosenfeld. He's going to be the opening speaker on day one of Interact London 2016. Um, Excellent. Which we're, we're going to be... We're going to be there as well. Popping up again. You'll remember we were there last year. Yeah. It's the 18th to the 19th of October at the British Museum in London. And that is an awesome venue. It's so beautiful. Mm. It's British we Museum. We need to make sure we find time to wander around. Yes. Because <laughs> we didn't do that last <laughs> no, we time. We were that. too busy interviewing yeah. people. Um, now, Lou, uh, I think... Well, for me, I mean, I, I've known about him for years, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But the first time I, I, I met him or saw him was mm. um, five years ago, exactly. Mm. Um, 2011, um, when um, he was the opening keynote at um, UXLX 2011, um, with his talk um, on not declaring victory, going beyond user research, right. which um, is, is something something I fly the flag for or mm. or push for as well. Although perhaps I do it often mm. from the other direction. It's like going beyond like analytics rather than going beyond right, user yeah. research. And maybe mm-hmm. the twist. Yeah, I put on that. Well, the first time I met him was actually 18 years ago, Ooh. which is the same number of years since it was he wrote his first book, Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. Which is now on its fourth edition. With, yeah, with uh, Peter Morville. And I actually got him to sign it. I bought it there at Builder.com mm. in 98 in New, or- New Orleans. Mm. And uh, I got him to sign it. And I was like awed by his presence. And, Pe- and Peter Morville. And uh, Peter Morville, got, I got him to sign it uh, a few years later when Peter Morville came ah, to Sweden, actually. Right. So he it came wasn't to the Stockholm. same time. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I think there's another thing you'll all know about, about Lou is that he runs Rosenfield Media. Yes. Um, Rosenfield Media himself and, and the books that they push out. There's, what, 25 now, I think, yeah. they've, they've produced over... Some excellent books in there. Oh, I've well. read a few of them, uh, like Luke Grabluski's form design and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's mm-hmm. the, yeah. There, there, there probably aren't very many bookshelves or Kindles mm-hmm. um, <laughs> in our branch, people in yeah. our branch, who don't have at least one, if not more, of those 25 books. True. So going from writing one of the most successful books within our actually industry and now being becoming the publisher of some of the most important books in our industry, let's talk to Lou Rosenfeld. Lou Rosenfeld, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Perhaps we should start at the beginning, as we like to do, yes. <laughs> with, with the Polar Beer book. Yeah, which, which reached its, um, its fourth edition, yeah. um, I think, at the, at the end of last year. Um, and also, it's, if I remember correctly, it's been 10 years between um, edition three and edition four. Mm. Well, what's, what's happened in those 10 years and, and, and what, um, what were the big changes that came into the book for the fourth edition? Well, uh, you know, it, for O'Reilly as the, the publisher of the book, I, I think it's, you know, one of their their bestsellers. So they, they it's in very much was in their interest to encourage us strongly to do uh, a new edition. But, you know, the, the it's interesting to track the progress of that book. It started out as a short book. The first edition was really only about 200, 250 pages. Mm. And um, it was when, in 1998, uh, when people were often creating sites for the first time. Yes. Uh, mm. And then we did the second edition a few years 
later, uh, which was twice as long, mm. and tried to really help people with existing sites, but also kind of spec out what IA might be as a field. And it broke my heart when my friend Steve Krug told me, no, that second edition is pretty good, but I, I, I really like the first one better or shorter. <laughs> so, um, well, his books are short. Edition, uh, yeah, then, then so uh, the, the third edition was uh, about another four years later, uh, 2006. And uh, we tried to position it with uh, more of a, a textbook feel because we knew people were using it as a text. Um, oh, in, in, in and it was still around. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and then we were confronted with doing a, a fourth edition, which I said would never happen, but <laughs> publishers can be very persuasive. Uh, and we really wanted to um, kind of break beyond the... Uh, the page is the unit and the web is the medium and think about mobile and, and other contexts and so the I think the, the new title is information architecture for the web and beyond. Oh right, it used uh, to be for and, the uh, for the World Wide Web. Was World it? Wide Web. Yeah. Mm. Right. The, for the World Wide Web as opposed to, you know, some other web. Mm. But it, uh, <laughs> you know, so things change over time, contexts change over time. But yeah. more importantly, um, we wanted to bring in uh, and kind of marry two threads or two schools of IA, uh, you know, Peter Morville and I come from library science backgrounds and for us IA was largely about findability. Uh, there's the whole Richard Saul Werman school of IA which is more about understandability. And uh, we brought in Jorge Arango uh, to, to really tackle the fourth edition and take the lead in adding content about understandability. And so the beginning chapters, the beginning section of the book has a bit more of a symmetry between findability and understandability. And then there was a lot of updating of examples that, that take into account uh, that we really are talking about IA for things not solely web. And we also took out a lot of the, you could call it cruft, which is all the, you know, what is IA as a field if you're an, an information architect this is what that means. Mm. Uh, we now believe uh, that like other aspects or facets of user experience design, IA is just one uh, type of literacy and one set of tools that lots of people should have in their toolkits. Mm. And so we de-emphasize the profession and try to help democratize the toolkit to anyone who's doing any kind of primarily digital design, you need to know something, and this book is hopefully a good place to start. Yeah, that's actually one of the, I suppose that's one of the, well, one of the many interesting aspects of the book in itself is that it, it predates UX as a, as a, as a common, commonly used term and, 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 oh, yeah. and an occupation, because mm. um, back, back in that day, as you know yourself, that we, were, we were all information architects that were UXers back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, it was the first book I read that actually described, some, came close to describing what I was working with, which, which was, was amazing feeling back that night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just going to yeah. say, I mean, we, we had uh, around the time of the second edition in the IA field, which was, you know, uh, in, more broad at that time, included many people who, as you were saying, now might call themselves, let's say, an interaction designer or something yeah, else. Yeah. We were having this whole debate about big mm. IA versus little IA, and Mm. Uh, big IA is is probably what we would now call UX. Yes. Little IA is is kind of what we were talking about in the book. Yeah, mm. and it, so it's it's traveled through. It's followed us on the journey and and traveled through it, and then kind of come out the other side again. Now, um, 
when 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 the industry is more mature with with UX being the the big thing that it, big broad thing mm. that it is. But how do you feel about that? Because well, I mean, and it's I, nice to see uh, it's nice to see IA is this thing that has continued relevance mm. and is you know at that table uh, with all the other. Mm. Uh, folks that uh, do UX and that tribalism is one of those things that, you know, if you were in the field 10, 20 years ago, like we were, that was kind of a problem. And that seems to have kind of blown over now, thankfully. So that's good to see, too. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. I, my feeling has been that information architecture lost, uh, I don't know, uh, Power. The, the sort of respect <laughs> it had back yeah. then for a, for a couple of years. And now it's had a sort of revival uh, where people are talking about it more. At least that's what I'm experiencing. Hmm. Well, information is, uh, you know, it only, there only is more of it all the time. And what you have uh, becomes increasingly uh, subject to rot, you know, redundancy, outdatedness, and hmm. triviality. And so these problems don't go away. They just get bigger and bigger. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we can't, you know, if we had a million information architects in the world, we still couldn't keep up. So true. I mean, we can't. You know, the, the the underlying structure that you get with information architecture, I mean, that that org organic kind of organization, it's something you know fundamental. We can't get away from it when mm. we've we've just design or just some other aspects mm. of it. It's an, it's a fundamental building block of the of the spectrum that we work with. Mm. But it's still one of those things. I I realize that when if you're talking to clients about it, it's one of the first thing things they want to strike. So <laughs> I sort of want to incorporate it into my daily work without saying it's information architecture. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because they're wondering, well, what, well why do you actually, that? I, yeah. I don't mm. consult anymore, but yeah. uh, I haven't in some years. Mm. But my advice to people who do is, I I think we should just leave these terms out when yeah. possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, they're, they're often un misunderstood mm. and therefore dangerous in, in the conversations mm. we have with, with people like clients. And It, they kind of obfuscate the actual problem space. So I think as as much as you can ban certain uh, expressions mm -hmm. from conversations, you'll find those conversations becoming much more productive. I, I learned that years ago when I, uh, in client meetings, I would ban the word portal. <laughs> They're always talking about portals and mm -hmm. nobody knew, you know, they all had different ideas, none of which were really especially relevant. And I, I remember saying, okay, from now on, uh, if any of you use that word, you throw a dollar in the table. And if I do, I throw $10 in the table. And, and uh, it's, it's amazing the, the kind of quality of discussion that we had after that ban. Mm -hmm. I think it's yeah. I mean, as a as a consultant, I mean, at times you don't understand that the, the your client sometimes is going to use a certain vocabulary, certain um, words, mm. and, and they're going to have certain understanding of it. And mm. sometimes you just have to roll with those mm. words and and let it flow, let it go, mm. and concentrate on delivering what yeah. they need because it doesn't matter what you call it as long as you deliver what they yeah, need. The amount of time we spend debating about what UX is and isn't is is just detrimental to the field i think it's it's uh, amazing how much time we spent talking to that mm. about that with our guests on the show it's just what is ux what isn't it i mean i really i think we've come to the same conclusion it's stop talking about it <laughs> and talk about uh, what objectives yeah exactly mm -hmm. i mean i don't think you necessarily have to ban words but um I, i think if you're not going to you better be very well prepared to say what do you mean by that mm -hmm. and be very persistent at asking that question and get them to kind of, you know, scratch beneath the surface of their their idea of reality and get to the real problem. Yeah, exactly. The kind of live user research on your clients to get to the real uh, mm. the, the real core of things. So so is the field changing or are we like 
progressing at all <laughs> within within the field of UX, within the field of the World Wide Web, and making it easier to use and understand. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, you, you guys probably know that my company puts on the Enterprise UX Conference. Mm. Uh, we're, we're, we've got the second one coming up in San Antonio, Texas, in uh, two or three weeks. And, I mean, here you're seeing this context of big, you know, behemoth bureaucracies mm. that uh, are being revolutionized, whether they like it or not, by the fact that their employees and other people who interact with them are also consumers mm. of user experiences. And so, you know, there's this whole tendency just in that context for people to either pressure their IT departments to make things work like their favorite device or their favorite website that's more consumer facing or just to do complete end runs around uh, the, the uh, anointed technology and the anointed services. And, and so that's just in the context of enterprises. I mean, the, the demand and the expectation that people have from the technology that they use is only growing, and so that's forcing the issue uh, in, in so many ways that it, it becomes less and less challenging to sell, mm. or even necessary to sell people on the idea of, of investing in good user experience. I think as far as like, the progress we've made as a, a field where it's more internal rather than responding to you know good market pressures, as I was just describing, Internally, I think we're, we've grown up a lot in the sense that we, we've sort of dispensed with a lot of the tribalism. We've also uh, acknowledged the fact that uh, people with good skills necessarily in, in UX come from different disciplines. They speak different languages. They have different toolkits mm -hmm. and different ways of looking at problems. And that they're getting better at synthesizing across those. So. I remember when I first started working with Luke Rabluski, who did our web form design book. Yeah. And I, I thought of him as kind of a, a newer generation of UX person mm -hmm. uh, who didn't really care about labels, who didn't really care about being partisan to, to specific tools or mm -hmm. chauvinistic in his disciplinary outlook. His attitude was just to say, look, you know, as a designer, I, I use evidence and I use intuition and my evidence can be developed by using different methods and different tools and the language that I use is very synthetic and I thought that was just a brilliant way and, and it gave me a lot of looking at problems and it gave me a lot of hope. Someone who just didn't care where the tool or the, or the perspective came from. And I see more and more people, especially younger people, who just, they just, you know, they don't have this baggage that was, you know, it has been hard for some of the older people in the field to, to overcome. You know, we didn't t typically set out to be UX people. We, we set out to be a graphic designer or a UX, or a, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, or a library scientist or uh, a marketing person or a developer, yeah. whatever it might be. And we were trained to think in those ways. We were trained to read certain things and go to certain conferences and, and not necessarily look beyond. Mm -hmm. And that's not no longer the case. And I think that's making the field much more effective and uh, a better place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of beyond, <laughs> yeah, your talk uh, coming up at Interact London beyond user research. You mentioned user research when you're talking about Luke there. I mean you base your design on insights and, and insights and data about users, but so what's beyond user research when you're when you're talking about that? So what I'm talking about at that at that, at that talk is 
the fact that we are still very chauvinistic and siloed in our thinking about, in this case, user research. Mm. And, you know, you have people who do kind of uh, traditional HCI-influenced user research in one part of an organization, and down the hall there may be someone who is, is taking, you know, kind of a brand-centric or brand architecture approach to doing user research, uh, or maybe they call it CX, and they, mm. you know, they have a different vocabulary, they have different tools, and then you have the analytics people who are mm. doing very different things, and you have... On and on and on and on. There, there's market researchers. There's service so design. There's, there's yeah. all these mm. exactly. Mm. And I mean, obviously, there's some overlap between the tools that all these different people use. But still, there's a lot of differentiation, and they're often good at answering certain types of questions, but they're not very good at putting those answers together to actually get real insights. Mm -hmm. And there's this missing step of synthesis. So, you know, an analytics person, for example, is really great at telling you what is going on. They can't really tell you why. Uh, uh, someone who's maybe got an HCI research background isn't necessarily the person you go to to figure out what's going on based on, the, on analyzing behavioral data, but they might be really good at, at developing methods or tests to figure out why things are happening the way they are. Uh, there's a lot of complementary work that that uh, is going on, but we're not putting that work together. And I think organizations that invest in user research are only halfway there because it's it's wonderful uh, that you're doing that, but it's not very good if you don't take that evidence and put it together and get different people to look at it together yeah. to synthesize yeah. what you've learned and, and get to true insight. And that's where I think organizations... Uh, are going to be really successful in the coming years are the ones that see that it's not enough to have evidence, it's actually to learn from the evidence and it takes a lot of types of evidence and a lot of types of people to put that evidence together. Mm. Yeah, no, this is exactly right. I remember talking about a similar topic at um, UXLX um, in 2011 um, and the whole thing about we, we need to combine uh, quantitative and, and qualitative data inputs, data, mm. data right. sources in order to to you know, check our you know have a, have a little check stop on our our guesses, our assumptions, exactly. our hypotheses that we're we're mm. designing with or building with to see how we can tweak them, how we can mm. we improve them. And there's so often you do interviews and and you you have other people look at some of the data from the interviews and and they they draw completely different conclusions from from your own based on what people are saying, which is really interesting as well. Which means that there is a process going on there where you're interpreting the data, but you need to be a lot more people than just one person or two persons looking at that data. Well, yeah, I mean, our, our, it's wonderful how different our brains are. Yeah. And uh, I might look at some data set and get something completely different than you would. Mm. And uh, it's not that I'm wrong and you're right or vice versa. We're, 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 we're both right. We're, I mean, the, 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 the metaphor I bring up again and again in that talk is the, the fable of the blind man and the elephant. You know, we all sort of have a, an understanding uh, of of what reality is, but until we put our our, our 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 understandings together, we don't know that it's an elephant. Yeah, you can learn that. And I haven't really seen, by the way, a lot of organizations uh, make headway. I'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the good work being done at Mailchimp, which is, I think, a, an exemplary organization in this regard. But they're also not that big, and it gets really hard to do this when you scale up to the enterprise size. Uh, but you know. 
this is beyond user research. This is a, a, a something of an aspirational talk, and I'm trying to point organizations uh, in the direction that they need to consider next. I think I think something I've reflected on is is how how little as 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 UX designers how little thought we put into um, how we could measure the 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 use of our designs when we're designing them. So this is kind of the, the thinking here that you'd bring in an analytics thinking in, early on into the production of, of a product or a website and so on, so you can better understand whether what you've produced works um, mm. based on all your research and so on. seems to be something that's, that's missed in a lot of organizations. Right, but those organizations typically have someone doing that work, right? Yeah. And it, it's drawing those connections and um, creating a... a an atmosphere uh, in an organization and a, and a mutual regard among its people so that you can, you can get them to work with each other and incent them to work with each other and, and making your organization essentially a, an evidence platform and hopefully uh, that leads to it being a, an insight platform. Oh, I, I can't believe I'm using it. <laughs> insight platform. platform. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Is that like a portal? Maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't. Oh God! Oh God! I think I just—I'm going to throw up. We're we're playing. We're going to play. We're going to play bingo with this interview. But uh, yeah, the, I mean, the the analytics side for organisations is often very you know, business analytics. I mean, it's, it's focused on on revenue results and that kind of thing, and and maybe not so much on the, I suppose, can I say, touchy feely side of of interaction, interaction design, and how things are are working. Um, so usage. Yeah, when you say touchy feely, I think human because humans yeah. are emotional beings and we make decisions not on logic so that's why the whole basis for economics is wrong mm. <laughs> and, and psychology is, is more on, the, on to the point <laughs> well look when you look at uh, you know from an analytics perspective a lot of what you know this is not completely fair but i mean a, a lot of the the metrics are very much influenced by you know the organization's goals and not by its customers' goals. Yes, yes. and uh, I think if you have those touchy feely people in there, they can kind of balance that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and help gain newer insights or, or mm. productive insights that we can work with. Yeah, and, there, and there's yeah. always an, for me there's an ethical aspect to that. I mean, because we can work uh, so well at, at getting conversions and helping people buy stuff, but we're not asking ourselves, are they happy beyond that purchase, beyond that conversion? Uh, and that's where I would like, for me, that is beyond user research. That's beyond the user research that is based around the website or whatever you're building. But are the people happy after that, after they signed up for that mortgage or uh, after they bought that sweater? Were they happy with the product, with the shipping? Uh, so there's so much beyond the, the digital space. Right, and, and think of what the service designers bring to the table in that yeah. regard and you know other designers as well who understand that you, you can't just say who cares what happens after the the transaction takes place uh but we have to kind of put these things together and have conversations uh, across disciplines in order for for this learning to start taking root as a kind of a more of a, a shared synthetic discipline within organizations it's not easy but it's it's kind of necessary yeah. Oh. oh, I've just found I've just found a, a quote from from your talk uh, UX Select. One listen to. I think it's a quote. It's at least my notes from it. Anyway, um, the the companies that integrate their silos of insight will outpace their competitors. 
Ooh. Absolutely. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, Listen, yeah. I, 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 I would, uh, I would certainly invest in, in uh, uh, an index fund uh, of companies that do that. Um, I would. Well, I mean, I think yeah. it's time for a UX-friendly uh, company index. That would be good enough as it is. Yeah. No, I, I wish I had that kind of money to throw around. It's <laughs> uh, another story. Because, you know, I am a publisher, so I'm so fabulously wealthy. Because <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where all the money is, is in publishing. That's right. Yeah. But isn't that something that that UX can bring to the table? Because uh, so many years back, then people started talking about corporate social responsibility, and I think that's actually something that we can bring to the table as professional UXers is mm. the insights that can make that happen. Because it's not no longer when companies start up, they talk a lot about what can we do for the community, what can we do for the world, how what we do for the environment, uh, and that comes into play into companies a lot more than it did just 15 years ago. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, I think you're right. I'm certainly hopeful. You you would think that you know certainly UX people um, have a, a, a high level of uh, humanism, uh, maybe compared to other fields. Uh, I I don't know if that's completely translated into more ethical organizations yet, but it's the sort of thing you you probably have to give it ten or twenty years to really get a sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to yeah to to move between generation and next generation that comes in and, and really truly adopts it. Yeah. yeah. So, right. so just before we finish off here, there's uh, something written on, on my whiteboard here that I still want to ask you about. Uh, you have an exercise around uh, something called designing a better you. And that, uh, just that sentence, just based on what we just talked about, it really appeals to me. But what is it that you're after when you're saying that, designing a better you? Well, that's something else I'll be doing at the conference, which is um, – it's a little simple exercise uh, where um, we pair people up and we get them to help each other. And they do this in turns, develop uh, personal mission statements that could be used in, in Twitter or in, in other in, in an elevator when you meet someone, uh, maybe <laughs> see epitaph on your tombstone, whatever it might be. Uh, we don't take the, the opportunity uh, to really create like a short statement or even think it through to describe ourselves and many of us are kind of weird jobs that nobody understands anyway and and you know we don't really have a chance to really kind of understand ourselves and this is a really lightweight exercise that we'll do um, in, in a large group we'll be breaking into pairs to do that I found I've done this probably five or six times now people like are so grateful they've they've like they just wow you know i hadn't really thought of myself that way and huh. i certainly hadn't thought of describing myself in this new thing new way that we've we've come up with and and people come up to me and then they'll also say you know i'm, I'm going to do this with my team because i need to pair my designer and my developer and have them do this for each other so they can understand each other. Yeah. So there's an outcome, there's a short statement which is useful, but it's one of those uh, exercises where the, the journey is at least as important. That sounds actually quite useful, quite healthy. Yes. I like that. More of that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Touchy feely, but. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Thank Th you. Well, yeah. go on, you go, Pat. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this with us, Lou. Uh, it's amazing talking to you. Uh, it's just awesome. And it would be so nice meeting you in London as well. well. I'm looking forward to it, guys. And I really appreciate the opportunity to come on the show. Excellent. You're welcome. 
I think it's really interesting when you're talking to an information architect and you're discussing the terminology we're all using in this industry and you're realizing that it doesn't help our customers or clients or whoever we're talking to to use the same words that we use internally within the industry to talk to them because that just confuses them. They don't need the level of detail. The, the, the reason we have this terminology internally to talk about different stuff like microcopy and, and information architecture, of course, and, and in other words, that we love to use like MVPs. Mm. Uh, we don't need to talk about that with clients. It's for us to talk amongst ourselves, yeah. uh, but that level of detail is just not of interest to them. It's, it's that's why we're the professionals within that industry, and they're professionals within in yeah. another industry. You know, it makes mm. me think as well now about um, from Steve Portugal's mm. book interviewing was it interviewing users. What's it called? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is also on Rosenfeld Media. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, in there, he's, 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 he reminds you of the importance of, of not presuming the people you interview understand what you're talking about. I think mm -hmm. there's, there's a picture of a USB cable. Oh, ah, okay. And he's, he says, I mean, just don't presume that mm -hmm. they know what a USB cable is, mm. you know, just because you do. Mm. And it's a very similar kind mm. of thing with us. Mm. I mean, you know, they don't know what UX is or could care what UX is. Exactly. Or, I mean, if, if they want to call it information architecture mm. or web design, or, mm. or whatever, um, fine. That reminds me of a story I heard of uh, people doing res user research when early, early mobile phones came out and there were these flip phones where you flipped off yeah. uh, the lid or whatever you call it yeah. uh, on the phone. And they're talking about flip phones and there was one of the users was talking about, well, I hate those flip phones and whatever. And then at the end <laughs> of this session, they showed him different phones and he just wait straight for, straight for the flip phone and you look, this is really cool. This is awesome. And you can do this. And he didn't know what a flip phone was. No. <laughs> See? It's you're, something you're, else entirely in his uh, mind. Your own yeah. biases presume, yeah. <laughs> make, make you presume you know what they're talking yeah, exactly, about. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The, the, the talk he's going to do now in, in um, October, um, reminding us again about connecting data points. Mm. Um, and uh, we've, we've mm. discussed that before, the importance of not just relying on one mm. input. So like mm. re user research, in user interviews by themselves, yeah, it's, it's it's valuable. It's incredibly valuable mm. data. But all of this kind of goes into the same pot and allows you to create hypotheses and insights and then take action based on mm. those and test whether mm. what you thought, the mm. presumptions you made as a designer, because yeah. we're just constantly guessing, yeah. were those guesses pretty good? Can I read that somehow? Can mm. I interview more people? Can I look at web data or exactly. analytics data or mm. research data from elsewhere, mm. other data points mm. to help me understand the, the success mm. or failure of that guess exactly. I made? I make a new guess. All, exactly. All your findings are just the basis for an, an, yet another experiment. Yeah. You're just experimenting upon an experimenting and then you're validating and, and trying to see if Anything is becoming better yeah. of, of the objectives you're trying to set there. And we didn't we didn't say mm. in the interview, mm. but I guess you know we could finish off by just saying it's all right to guess. Yes, as long as you have some data mm. to kind of keep you back, mm. to be your wingman. Right, and it's fine to be open about that you're guessing. I think it's important to be open about that you're guessing. This is guesswork, mm. and this is my data, and these are my conclusions right now from it, and I'm going to test those conclusions this way. And if you presented that, like, people are going to take you more seriously. Yeah, you're guessing with a yeah. plan. Yeah, there is no guru that you can ask. This is the way it is. Ah, <laughs> we're going to play. We're going to seriously going to. You got UX podcast bingo with this episode, I reckon. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, coming up um, on the third of June, 
at 1400 hours CET, mm-hmm. which is European time. Mm. Some, oh, CEST. Be picking yeah, that again. It, it, European summertime. But Google says CET. I yeah, noticed. Google's wrong. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're having our um, listener phone in. Yes. It's time again for another one. So great fun doing these listener phone-ins. And we'll be joined by Dan Wee. It means we're doing it live. We're doing it with video. You can call in. You can chat with us uh, online. Post questions, tell stories. It's, it's just amazing. And we've had people staying up at midnight in Australia. Uh, just Getting to, up early in America. Just to participate. And it's, it's wonderful. It's just... Uh, a global podcast fest. <laughs> yeah. And so we've be, we be manning the, mm. the, the chat and video channels live for a few hours mm. um, on Friday afternoon of June the 3rd. Mm. Please come and join us. Um, uh, subscribe to the backstage email if you're not already on there cause so you can get notified. Yep. We will mm. send out things there and in other channels as well. Like mm-hmm. Follow us on. Um, and while you're at it, if you do enjoy listening to the show, then you can just rate us, star us, Harters or whatever interaction pattern the particular platform you listen to this show on has like decided like to employ. <laughs> um, plus one us. Plus one us. Yep, exactly. <laughs> plus one us. Um, we're UX Podcast. One word. If you want to app mention us, however that works in whatever platform you're using. Um, and show notes are available on UXPodcast.com. We're your hosts, James Roy Lawson. And Pan Axbo. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.